Hello, my Maccabees. One down, three to go to the season one finale. What will the Wheel of Ghastly Tales land on today? Find out next on season one, episode 13 of the Mod Macabre podcast. So it's getting closer to Halloween and I'm still trying to decide if I'm going to do an actual Halloween themed episode this Friday. I'm still kind of up in the air about it. I love Halloween. I'm sure that's not a surprise to you because of course I love everything that's ghastly and creepy and kooky. Um, But I haven't really celebrated it in terms of dressing up and going out that much in the last oh, 20 years, maybe? I blame it on my sophomore year of college. You guys, back in the good old days, I was attending the State University College at New York at Fredonia, which is a mouthful. Otherwise, it was known as SUNY Fredonia, and I was an English major. Halloween was upon us in October of 1999, and there was an outdoor party that my roommate, Erica, and I had been invited to. So, Everyone who was anyone was going to be there at this party, and I had a date that night. He was a saxophone major, so SUNY Fredonia was an art school, but he also played guitar in this band called the Fulton Avenue Six, and I had an enormous crush on him. I was just absolutely gaga over this guy. So because he was meeting me at the party, I decided that I was going to go dressed up like Marilyn Monroe. Now, not just any Marilyn Monroe, right? No, I was going to go as the Marilyn on the gray in the white dress that flowed up around her. She stood on like that Marilyn. I already had bleach blonde hair. Check. I mean, it was the late 90s, so cut me some slack here. But I didn't need to worry about that. All I had to do was secure the white dress, the red lipstick, and the dark brown eye pencil to make a fake mole. I did that and I was set. So fast forward to the morning of Halloween. It's October 31st, 1999. I wake up that morning and I look out the window and it was absolutely frigid out. The temperature had plummeted overnight. And now remind you, this is Western New York and I have lived in Western New York my whole life up until this point. So you would think that I would naturally had a backup plan uh, for if something like this were to happen, right? Nope, I sure didn't. No plan B, just a bare skin dress and a fake mole and impending hypothermia. So I wake my roommate up and I like die dramatically on her bed. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be my last night on earth because I'm going to freeze to death at this party. And she was like, dude, no way. You're not going to that party tonight in this Marilyn Monroe costume. Like I plan on drinking. I'm not driving you to the hospital. Like let's go to party city. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, Party City was a store that you could go to that had all sorts of celebration favors. I think they're still around, actually. But, you know, more importantly to this story, they had costumes that you could rent. The problem was it was the morning of Halloween. So, of course, all the good costumes had already been taken. So 
An hour after hemming and hawing over what I was going to do, Erica excitedly announced to me that she had a solution. She showed me our only option at that point, and I begrudgingly rented the two matching costumes and on our way we went. Which brings me to the party. So, Maccabees, have you guys, I'm, I'm assuming that you've seen the movie Mean Girls, and there's the main character, Katie, and she's invited to a Halloween party, but she doesn't understand that all the girls are going to be dressed up like slutty cats, and so she comes as the bride of Frankenstein, right? So that scene hits me just a little different, honestly, because that was me, except I wasn't the bride of Frankenstein. No, no. My friend Erica was a cute little hamburglar with a little mask and the little like black and white striped costume, I ended up being a Big Mac. Yep, you heard me right. I had a large sesame seed bun front. I had lettuce, like meat patties, special sauce, like pouring out my sides. I had on leggings, a turtleneck. I just stood there trying to look cool amongst a whole bunch of other college girls, which it was 99, so they were all dressed up like the Limp Biscuit backup dancers. It was horrible. And then I see my date, John, and he walked up to me and he was like, wow, you're a cheeseburger. And like at that moment, like I got incredibly enraged and I was like, I am a Big Mac. Thank you very much. Like, get it right. I'm a Big Mac. So the good news is, is that for one, I did not get hypothermia in my turtleneck and Big Mac costume. And I ended up dating a very cool saxophone player for the next two years. So John, if you're listening, thank you for being such a good sport. So that is why I feel like I have an aversion to dressing up to Halloween, but I want to know, do you guys love it? Like, do you get dressed up every year? I have a friend, her name is Sarah Rock, and she dresses up every year and she looks fabulous, like absolutely fabulous. Yeah. So Halloween, you know, I love, I love the holiday. I love the spookiness of the season. I love the weather change, but I feel like because of my horrible Big Mac story, I have this aversion to dressing up, but I hope that you guys have plans for the weekend and I hope you're going to go out and have a lot of fun. But before you do, I want to give this wheel of ghastly tales a spin to see what we're in for on today's episode of the Mod Macabre podcast. So let's do that. Okay. Let's do it right now. Here we go. Yay. Oh, you know what that means. Friends, Maccabees, we have landed on what the macabre? And I'm really happy because A, you know this is my favorite category, but B, ever since we did the last What the Macabre episode, I backfilled the story to be at the ready with something that I have just been dying to tell you all about. And now I'm getting the opportunity to do it. I think this might actually turn out to be our Halloween episode because this story, it's really creepy, ghastly, all things Halloween-y. And I think... Maybe after people hear this story, everyone, it would be really creepy to dress up as Helen DeHoyo. Hmm. Who knows? But I will tell you that she is the secondary character in the story I'm about to tell you. So grab your chair, pull it up to the campfire, and let me introduce you to the story of Carl Tanzler.
Karl Tanzler was born in Dresden, Germany in the year 1877. He honestly, Maccabees, he has a really weird history that has actually nothing to do with the story, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway, because I think that it's worth mentioning nonetheless. In a nutshell, Karl Tanzler traveled from India to Australia prior to the outbreak of the First World War. He meant to move along to the South Sea Islands, but while he was there in Australia, he became interested in engineering and electrical work, and so he ended up staying there for like 10 years. And he bought some property, and while he was working on building some kind of transatlantic sailboat that he planned to test out, World War I officially broke out and the British military scooped him and others up and basically put them in a camp for quote-unquote safekeeping, although he was in there with prisoners of war. So who actually knows what the real reason he was in there for? It, it may have just been from his German ancestry, but it's not really known. But later on, he was moved to a castle-like structure known as Trial Bay, and he lived there until the conclusion of the war. Later, it was forbidden for anyone who had been interred to return to their home of former residence, so they were all shipped to Holland. When he was released, he went back to Germany to look for his mother, who he found safe, and it was then that he met and married Doris Schaefer. Together, they had two children, and after a while, he decided that he was going to immigrate to the United States, where his sister already was, and so he bid goodbye to his wife and his children with the promise that he would bring them to the U.S. shortly thereafter, which he did, and they lived with his sister in Zephyr Hills, Florida. Okay, so now that we got that out of the way, so we know that Carl had a couple of pretty weird decades under his belt, and that brings us to him getting a job at the United States Marine Hospital in Key West, Florida in 1927. He was hired on as a radiology technician, and so he left his family in Zephyr Hills, and he only moved himself to Key West to perform his job duties. Now, is this the part where I tell you, yeah, it is. Listen, prior to this, Carl Tanzler had repeatedly told people in the years leading up to this that he was often visited by visions of his dead ancestor, Countess Anna Constantina von Kossel, who apparently, when he was 12 years old, she revealed to him the face of his true love in a dream. So yeah, he said that she revealed the face of his true love to him, who was an exotic, dark-haired woman, and he spent his whole life trying to find her. So I guess you can say that he just sort of settled for Doris, which becomes a pertinent part of the story as we go on, which makes more sense, honestly, as to why it was so easy for him to leave her behind in Zephyr Hills with his sister when he got this new job. Anywho, Carl is busy with his new job responsibilities, and in April of 1930, he was alerted to the fact that a new patient had been brought into the hospital by her mother, who was very concerned about her daughter's failing health. When Tanzler entered the examination room, he immediately recognized that this patient, 21-year-old Maria Elena Malegro de Hoyas, she was the woman who his ancestor showed him in that dream so many years ago. Before him was his soulmate in this examination room. And it didn't matter to him that she was 32 years younger. He immediately knew that this girl, 
she was the one. So Milagro, she, she went by her nickname, Helen, right? So that's how people would address her is Helen. And she was in declining health. She too had an interesting history as she was born in 1909 and she was the Cuban American daughter of a cigar maker. And she had been married in February of 1926 to Louis Mesa. However, he left her shortly after she suffered a miscarriage of their firstborn child. And so she then moved back in with her parents. So while at their home, the family had become ill, but at that time, Helen was the worst out of all of them. After examination, it was determined that Helen had tuberculosis, which was still a fatal disease in the 1900s. It had no cure. But despite the fact that he didn't have the qualifications to actually treat the tuberculosis diagnosis, I mean, he was just a radiology technician after all, Carl Tanzler made Helen the promise that he was going to do everything he humanly possibly could to save her life. Of course, at this point, Helen had no idea that the reason he was so dedicated to saving her life was that he was convinced that she was his soulmate, the love of his life. Now, eventually, Tanzler would let on to Helen that he was in love with her. And there's absolutely no documentation anywhere that Helen ever reciprocated the love for him. But he dedicated every single minute of his existence to treating her with special elixirs and tonics and medicines, as well as like x-ray and electrical equipment. It was a constant effort to save her life. And he frequently visited her home. He showered her with gifts and Helen White, you know, she welcomed them despite the fact that he was 32 years older than her. But I mean, honestly, at that point, she probably knew she was going to die. So, I mean, let's just give this a try, right? That's, that's what I would have thought. Unfortunately, Helen succumbed to her illness in October of 1931, which had also claimed the lives of a lot of her immediate family members. And Tanzler was obviously absolutely heartbroken. And he insisted to the remaining family that he would pay for Helen's funeral. And he was going to pay for the cost of building an elaborate mausoleum in the Key West Cemetery. And he also wanted to handpick the mortician that would prepare her remains to be laid to rest. Even though the family thought it was odd, they agreed. They they didn't have a lot of, you know, substantial means money-wise. And so they were like, hey, if this guy wants to do this, that's fine. Now this, this is the part where things start to go south in a hurry. Now, trust me, I know that matters of the heart are the hardest to maneuver and the death of a loved one is never something anyone wants to have to endure. But what happened next takes this story from weird to just downright macabre. And we will find out exactly what that is after this short break. Be right back. All right, so we're back in where were we? Helen has died from her tuberculosis diagnosis and Carl is absolutely heartbroken. So at first, after Helen was interred, Carl would visit the mausoleum every single night after her funeral. There was never a single evening that her family would go there to grieve that he wouldn't be there. 
And because Tanzler had paid for the construction of the mausoleum, there was only one key that remained in his possession. When the family asked Tanzler for another key, he refused them. And he continued this for two straight years, never missing a night of visitation with Helen's interred body until April of 1933, when he mysteriously lost his job at the U.S. Marine Hospital. The family reported that after that day, they never saw him again at the mausoleum. Now, they didn't know it at the time, but there was a perfectly good reason for that. And that reason was because that in April of 1933, two years after Helen's death, Carl Tanzler finally made the move that he had been preparing for, for two years. He snuck into the mausoleum after dark. He took the dead body of Helen de Hoyos and he carted it through the cemetery in a wagon to his waiting car. And from there, he took it to the makeshift laboratory that he had been building in his home, which is obviously the reason we know now why de Hoyos family never saw him again, because he had no reason to go back there since now he had her body with him permanently. Okay, Maccabees, so here we go. The first thing Carl Tanzler did when he got Helen back to the makeshift laboratory was he got busy attaching all of Helen's bones back together the best he could with piano wire. The next thing he did was he fit two glass eyeballs into her skull. And then naturally at this point, her skin was decomposing. And so he would soak silk cloth in wax and plaster of Paris to wrap around her bones to recreate her skin. As her hair fell out, he would gently collect it and he eventually had a real wig fashioned out of her hair that he would place on her head and he would comb and style. He also stuffed her abdominal and chest cavity with rags so that it would keep somewhat of a human form. And every single day he would dress her, he would do her hair, he would adorn her with jewelry, and he lived that way with her dead corpse for seven years. Oh, and by the way, he kept her in his bed. He slept next to her every night. He used a ridiculous amount of potpourri, disinfectants, perfumes, and preservation agents on and around Helen and so that the smell of decaying flesh would be kept at bay. He also routinely applied mortician's wax to Helen's face to make her look more alive. And now, I'm going to add this. I wasn't sure that I was going to add this part into here because there's some debate on whether or not this actually happened. But spoiler alert, they eventually discover this and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they said that when the body was examined by physicians and pathologists after it was found, that there was a tube that was inserted into Helen's vaginal canal that suggested that Carl Tanzler committed necrophilia, which if you don't know what that is, it's having sex with dead corpses. Um, and this is debated widely because he was never actually charged with necrophilia. And again, we'll get to that in a minute. So a lot of people think that that was added after the fact just to kind of make this story way more creepy. Um, what we've learned so far, I wouldn't doubt it, 
it was mentioned in an HBO series uh, that was actually done about this particular story. It was mentioned in that as well as a fact. So, Maccabees, I'm just going to tell you at this point, it's not proven that that happened. He was never charged with it. I don't know. I guess y'all can make up your minds as to whether or not you believe it or not, but that was an additional fact of the case, supposedly. Okay, so now he's living with this corpse for seven years. He's dressing it up. He's, you know, putting her all back together. And people who lived in the town started to take notice that Tansler, he would frequent the local stores and he would purchase women's clothing, jewelry, perfume, shoes. The shopkeepers found this to be really odd because A, he never went in there with an actual woman and B, everyone knew that he lived alone. And then one day, a local newspaper delivery boy was riding by on his bicycle and he saw Tansler through the front window that led into the living area of Tansler's house. He saw him dancing with what appeared to be an oversized doll that was dressed in women's clothing. So Helen's family, of course, at this point, they still lived in the area and they heard all of the local gossip about Carl Tansler. And obviously knowing how obsessed he was with her prior to her death, they started wondering, like, what the heck is going on here? So in October of 1940, Helen's sister, Florinda, she decided that she that enough was enough here. And she was going to go to Tansler's house and she was going to speak to him about all the rumors that were also including at this point that he had made a giant sized doll that resembled her dead sister. And she wanted to know what the deal was. When she got to Carl's house, she basically pushed her way inside, demanding answers about all the rumors that were going around the town. And when she first got there, you know, he didn't he didn't want her in the home naturally, but again, she forced her way in and she noticed this horrible stench that permeated every foot of this house. And it was mixed with the smell of like floral perfume and disinfectants. And as she's interrogating him, you know, she's like, look, this is what's being said in town. I want answers. She's walking from room to room, searching for anything that was out of the ordinary. Um, and then of course he's insisting that she leave and she's like, no way I want answers. So she finally gets to the bedroom and she like gasps because she sees with her own two eyes what she thought to be the life-size doll of Helen that everyone in town had been talking about. And she was like, what the hell? Like, what is this? And so she quickly leaves the residence and she goes to the local authorities to report to them what she had seen. Now, let's be honest here. It's not like being in possession of a large lifelike doll is a crime, but the authorities, they had too heard the whispers of the weird man who danced with a doll in his house. So of course, they jump at this chance to get in there and see what's going on for themselves. When they get to the home, it didn't take too long for them to realize that in fact, this doll wasn't actually a doll at all, but the actual corpse of Helen de Hoyo and Tansler was immediately taken into custody. Naturally, the first thing that they did when they get Tansler to the prison is they make him, you know, go through a psychiatric exam because let's be honest, who in their right mind steals a corpse and sews it all back together and dances with it and sleeps next to it for seven years, right? Well, as a surprise to everyone, 
Tansler was found mentally competent to stand trial, and so he waited his turn in court on the charge of wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. After a preliminary hearing on October 9th of 1940 in Key West, Carl Tanzler answered to the charge and he explained to the court his undying love for Helen and how his overall plan was to bring De Hoya back to life through intergalactic means. He wanted to take her, and this are, these are his exact words from the court testimony, he said he wanted to take her high into the stratosphere so that radiation from outer space could penetrate Helen's tissues and restore life to her lethargic form. <laughs> so not that this was crazy enough, but the case, the case itself was eventually dropped because the statute of limitations had expired for the initial crime which was committed in 1933. The strange part about all of this is that in the court of public opinion, a lot of people actually stuck up for Tanzler, stating that they thought that his actions were romantic. One lady, she was actually interviewed outside the court because there were tons of people during his, his hearings that would stand outside in droves. And this lady was interviewed. She stated that she wished that someone would love her the way that Carl loved Helen. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Like, seriously, Maccabees. And this was, like, nationwide. The story was in every newspaper across the country because naturally it was so weird. But people were, like, gaga over Carl and how his and DeHoya's story were so romantic and star-crossed. Look, again, y'all know I don't judge, but personally, <laughs> like, that is just crazy. Ugh. Anywho, after the trial, the weirdness... It continues. After Helen DeHoyo's body was examined by those physicians and the pathologists, the state of Florida took possession of her corpse. And instead of just, you know, returning it to its final resting place, they decided it would be so much better to put her body on display at the Dean Lopez funeral home. This just absolutely boggles my mind. I mean, it's not like this poor girl hadn't already been through enough. I mean... I know she was dead, but like, come on. So almost 7,000 people came through the funeral home to oogle over her and the creepiness of her dead body, knowing that some crazy guy had it in his bed for seven years. It was quite a spectacle. Eventually, her body was sent back to the Key West Cemetery, but because the family was so scared that Carl Tanzler would find a way to steal it again, it was buried in an unmarked grave in a secret location. So like I usually do, I just want to recap here. Carl Tanzler was a radiology tech in 1930. He had a new patient, Helen DeHoyo, and he immediately knew that this girl, he had been told at age 12 in his dream by his dead ancestor, this was the love of his life. She was diagnosed with tuberculosis, which at the time had no cure, and he went out of his way to treat and to heal her, visiting her frequently at her family's home. He's showering her with gifts, but to no avail, in October of 1931, she dies. 
Tansler immediately offers to pay for the funeral. He builds this elaborate mausoleum and he visits us every night. And in April of 1933, which was a year and a half after her death, he visited her one last time because that night was the night that he stole her dead body and carted it through the cemetery and brought it back to her house. And he stuffs her with glass eyeballs and rags and has wigs made out of the hair that fell out. He dresses her up. He dances with her. He sleeps with it for the next seven years. Who can even believe that this happened? But it did. Now, I'm recapping this for you because all of these details were known to the public to include his wife, Doris. Remember her? The one who left, like, he left her behind in Zephyr, Zephyr Hills? Well, Doris, she put Tammy Wynette to shame during this time because she stood by her man this whole trial and continued to support him in his later years as well. And now there's one thing there. I'm, I'm good at a lot of things. Love is not one of them and I'm really terrible at it. So I may not be the best person to have an opinion on this, but if I found out that my husband had become obsessed with another woman after she died and he stole her dead body and stuffed it with weird things and slept next to it for seven years. Yeah. I definitely don't think, I don't think I'd be able to work that out. <laughs> right. So eventually Carl moved to Pasco County, Florida to be near Doris and she and him continued their marriage and he received his United States citizenship in 1950 because he never actually was convicted of anything um, when it came to, to grave robbing and all the things he was uh, charged with because the statute of limitations had run out. So this is the last weird part of this story. Somehow, Tansler, he was able to keep in his possession a death mask. So it was made of Helen's face, presumably right after she died. So for those of you who don't know, a death mask is like a likeness of a person's face. It's usually made by a cast or an impression from the corpse of their face. And he had one of these he kept it in his possession and he used this death mask to make another life-sized effigy of helen and that stayed in his home with him until he died in july of 1952 when he was 75 years old All right, Maccabees, that is the end of today's episode. Carl Tanzler, what a crazy person, and yet a perfect story for what the macabre? I'm so glad that you guys joined me today for this creepy tale just in time for Halloween. No matter what your plans are for this weekend, I hope you have a great time. I hope you stay safe, and I will see you again later on this week on the next episode of the Mod Macabre podcast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Mod Macabre podcast. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please click on the five-star rating. And if you love the format of random creepy stories of the strange and unusual delivered by my campfire in story format, please subscribe to the Mod Macabre podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. New episodes are launched every Tuesday and Friday morning. Thank you again for listening.